0: So if you'll turn with me, Uh, we are in 1 John, in the first chapter. We just began this letter last week, um, and we are in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Grass withers, flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come before this Word, we know that none of it will be profitable without the work of your Spirit in our hearts. And so we pray for that work. We pray that you would unite our hearts by your Spirit to fear you, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and soft hearts To receive your word this morning. Father, we pray all these things for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, it was during my freshman year that the album Jesus Freak by DC Talk uh, was hitting the airwaves. And so, um, I know most people are probably more familiar with the, the song Jesus Freak, perhaps, but I gravitated towards what we played just at the beginning of the service. It's actually a cover um, of a song written by Charlie Peacock. Charlie Peacock wrote that in 1991. It was on his Love Life album. And I love Peacock and, and his, the, the way he actually gets to the heart of matters. Um, just a, a very deep thinker in, in many ways. And that song, In the Light, is one that I think in so many ways it, it expresses the, the longing of the heart to live honestly, to live honestly and, and with integrity before God. It's, there, there's a desire to live, obviously, in the light, to live in the light of God, to live daily and moment by moment before the face of God. To live, as the Latin phrase would put it, coram Deo before the face of God, before God, to live your whole life before and in His presence. And this morning, we really see that same idea in our text. The Apostle John sets forth a proposition, a proposition that God is light. God is light, and then from that proposition, He draws out certain implications, practices that are in keeping with that proposition. This text is a call for us to walk uprightly, to live in honesty about our lives and the, the reality of sin. But, but in many ways, it, it even highlights and, and um, shines a, a light on the reality of the cleansing and forgiveness that one has in Jesus Christ. So it's a call to live honestly, but we can do that because of the work of Jesus, because of His work in our lives. And so my prayer this morning is that our hearts would be open to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through these words. So verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So that's the proposition. I I just mentioned that. That's the proposition, and he gets to this proposition once again by reminding the readers that he, as an apostle, that he, John, has the authority to deliver this message. It's something that he heard. It's something that he has seen and heard. If we just back up a few verses, now one of the things that actually isn't very visible in English because it's not the greatest English in the world to translate it this way is John very much emphasizes the reality of the message. He puts the verb is early in the the sentence. And so it it almost comes across um, in, in the sense of there exists, there is this message. It's there. It's always been there. It is timeless. It's not something new. John is, I think even in the way he said that and wrote it, he's saying, I'm not the one bringing novelty. The false teachers who are trying to deceive you, they're the ones bringing something new. And this is just a a little freebie. If somebody brings up something that no one else has ever seen in Scripture, run. Just turn the other way and run, because it's probably heresy. Okay? Do not fall for that new and shiny thing. He's saying this is timeless. This is the message that has existed. So what is proclaimed then? What is proclaimed is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. Not that he, ha- that, that he has light as a characteristic or that He is the, uh, a certain light among a bunch of other lights, but that God is light. But let's work out maybe a little bit further what that means. Well, it's not some metaphysical statement about God that, if taken further, would would yield some sort of pantheism in the sense that particles of light all had some sort of divinity. And so, as we flip on the lights, oh, there's God. No, it's not saying that. It may actually come from what we read earlier in the call to worship from Isaiah 60 refer to the coming of God, the the light shining, the the coming of God in in restoration, that this light is shining amidst the the dark world and is dispelling the darkness. The renewal and restoration has begun in God who is light. And so, when we think about that idea of, of God, with that in mind, it's natural that from a statement like this, that God is light, there would flow ethical implications that there would be ethics that come from this, which is what John moves into. If one wants to be in fellowship with the light, they must live in accord with the light. But there's another aspect to stating God is light, and I think it's a pretty important concept, and John uses this not only in this letter but in his gospel. As one commentator put it, wrote this way, he said, just as light and darkness cannot physically coexist in the same space. John uses this duality to explain what constitutes fellowship with God and what disqualifies a person from fellowship, because sin and righteousness are as mutually exclusive as light and darkness. So, there's this duality, sin and… and And darkness, or or, or sin and righteousness and light, or darkness and light, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And you can see this in the emphatic negative that he says after God is light. What's he say? And in him is no darkness at all. You could actually put that, and in him there is not any darkness, not at all. It's very, very emphatic. There's no darkness. There's none, not a bit. It's inconceivable for there to be darkness and light together. And so we're going to see that more as we work through this letter as well. Now, as far as what God is light continues to mean, technically John doesn't give us a definition. He doesn't define it in this text. However, I I think it's very safe for us to assume or to deduce that, that, that this is spoken of in terms of God's holiness, in terms of God's purity, And I love what Stephen Charnock wrote. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but uh, it it flows very well. Stephen Charnock wrote a a great book called The Existence and Attributes of God that is probably that thick and, and thick in and of itself inside. But it's wonderful, and he has a chapter on holiness. And so he writes this. He says, "...the notion of a God cannot be entertained without separating from him whatsoever is impure and bespOTTing both in his essence and actions." Though we conceive him infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, and wise and immutable in his counsels, merciful in his proceedings with men, and whatsoever other perfections may dignify, so sovereign a being. So he says, if if God is this most magnificent, powerful being, he says then, yet if we conceive him destitute of this excellent perfection, that which is holiness, and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him but an infinite monster and sully all those perfections we ascribed to him before. We rather own him a devil than a god. It is a contradiction to be God and to be darkness, or to have one mode of darkness mixed with his light. It is less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it the one makes him no god the other a deformed unlovely and detestable god so what he's saying very clearly is you cannot have a god who has darkness not a true god and and you don't want one cuz he's detestable an all powerful all sovereign all knowing being that is not holy and pure is scary but one who is all that and holy is a delight, is a joy, is a refuge. So God is light. That has implications for us. Makes me think of Psalm 36.9. It says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So in his light do we see light. This gives direction for where John is going to go in these next few verses, that we are to live in that light, walking in the light. John moves from, from what we would call in the statement in this proposition of God is light, from orthodoxy, from right belief, from uh, truth to what we would call orthopraxy which is right practice. It is correct conduct, particularly ethical conduct. So folks, there are implications in our lives as those made in the image of God to live in conformity with him, to live in conformity with that image. So then we come to verses 6 through 10. And there are a couple different ways as, as I read through this and studied it that d- different folks organize these verses Because one thing that you can see in each of these verses, they have an if statement. They all have an if statement. And so the way I put this together in my study is that verse 6 kind of sets this ethical topic. It sets it going. And then verses 7 to 10 further that idea. And they do so in parallel. Verses 7 and 9 do it uh, uh, parallel with each other. And verses 8 to 10 are in parallel with one another. And hopefully we'll see that a little bit more clearly as we move on. But I'm going to reread these verses, and I want you to think about that. Think about verse 6 as kind of setting the topic, and then you'll see 7 and 9 in parallel and 8 and 10 in parallel. So if you don't have your Bible open or, or click to that page, I would encourage you to do that. Um, it's helpful for you to see kind of how, this, how I got to this point, how it, it, it's, it's come about. So listen uh, again to verses 6 through 10. is not in us. So, verse 6. Now, remember John's impetus in writing, why he's writing this letter. He's writing because he, he wants to shore up their belief. He wants to, 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 to give confidence and assurance to his readers, and he also wants to warn them against the false teachers, He wants to warn them against false doctrine that will lead them astray. And so this first statement sets the tone, the direction that John is going to to go with each of these successive if clauses. This is the particular area of implication off the phrase, God is light, off that statement, that proposition, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, that he is going to illuminate in these next few verses. Okay? It's not that this is the only implication, but this is the one that he's going to hit right now. So, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, John sets the stage with a negative statement. Some commentators included this in their parallel structure uh, uh, and and put it with verses 8 and 10. You can do that. It's fine. Um, For me, it works better as a heading. It all gets to the same point. Um, It all gets to the same point. So, if we say... Now, what is said? If we say... We have fellowship with Him. Okay, well, that's what a believer should say, right? Shouldn't we say that as believers? That's normal. We should claim fellowship with God the Father because He has reconciled us. He has brought us out of darkness and into light. That comes with salvation. When we are saved, we are brought into a family and into a community, not only with Him, but with one another in fellowship. But there's a catch in this verse, isn't there? But if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, well, there's something that, that doesn't flow right here. That, that, that doesn't follow. You cannot claim to have fellowship with God, who is light, and yet walk in darkness. Folks, listen, yes, we all come as we are to God. We come as sinners, but we don't stay as we are. We progress. We move towards greater holiness, greater conformity to his image. Now, what does John mean by walk? Well, walk refers to the way one believes and lives. Refers to the way one believes and lives. So, how does one know whether they are walking in darkness? John doesn't actually give us any examples in these verses right here, so I think it would be helpful to, to look at something else that John wrote, and that's in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. He wrote this, he said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now again, there's not a ton of specifics there, but you can see that the deeds of darkness are evil and wicked. They don't like the light. We could also look at Paul's list of the the works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. And see those type of things. They're actions and ideas that cannot stand the light of God. Folks, the walking in darkness is the things we do in secret. They're the things we hide because we don't want them exposed. We don't want somebody else to know we're doing them. Although I would say sadly, right now, in our world, many of the deeds of darkness are actually being celebrated. And are often the things in which people take pride. John is having none of that. He's saying, no, no. His assessment is that those who propose this, who propose to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, they're guilty on two points. Okay? That's what he says in this verse. He says, first, they lie flat out. They just, they lie. They lie about their relationship with God, they lie about the nature of God, and they lie to others about what is approved by God. All of those. But also, second, they do not practice the truth. They, you know, in in many ways, the idea is they don't do the truth. They don't do it. They, they don't work it out. They, they don't do what is true. And I found this helpful when thinking about this idea of practice the truth or doing the truth. Another commentator said, in modern Western culture, truth is a mental, it's a cognitive entity, entity but one of the distinctives of Joe and I, or, or John's thought, is that truth is not a doctrine to be believed and accepted cognitively. It is something that must be done." Something to be embodied by the person claiming to have the truth. To do truth means to live in accordance with God's definition of truth in all our words and decisions. So, now, of course, there there is that prerequisite that you have to know the truth to do it. So there is a cognitive aspect, but it's not the cognitive alone. It's more than cognitive. You actually have to do the truth. You've practiced the truth in your life. You can see that John is concerned about practicing what you proclaim, about living with integrity, living in in the light. He does not want his readers deceived. He wants them to walk in the light and to rest in Christ and his work. And we're going to see all this very clearly as we move through verses 7 to 10. So again, these verses are set in pairs that correspond to one another. Hopefully you can see that. You might not be able to read it all. It's kind of some of what I did in my study. And so you can see 7 to 10 or or 7 and 9 are these positive statements. And verses 8 8 and 10 are negative. And you can see the correspondence in the highlighting okay, of how these verses are parallel with one another. Now, that's probably not going to stay up there the whole time, but that's just so you can kind of see what I'm talking about when I say these are in parallel to each other. So, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the start of verse 7, you have, there's this contrast, but, but if we walk in the light, as opposed then to walking in the darkness while claiming fellowship with God. Now, we looked at what it, kind of what it meant to walk in darkness, what does it mean to walk in the light? In general, it means to walk in a way that does the truth, that practices truth. It's the opposite of walking in darkness. But John is more specific here. If you see the the yellow highlighted, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, what does verse 9 say? If we confess our sins. That's the correspondence between those two verses. That's what he's trying to hit. He's referring to walking in the light in this context is being honest about our life and about the fact that we have sin to confess. It's that we are to live humbly and honestly, that we show integrity, that we know that we sin and we confess that sin. The question with that, though, is what is confession? We, we have a confession of sin in the service, but what is confession? One thing we can deduce from the language of confession here is that it is ongoing. The tense is present active. It's a present active verb that we continue to confess. We keep confessing. Now, in the Christian life, there was an initial confession for us. As we initially confessed and agreed with God, we bowed the knee to Christ, agreeing that we've sinned, that we've transgressed His laws, that we're rebels. But then walking in the light involves continual confession, continual repentance. It's faith and repentance. A, a friend of mine, a pastor in Florida, just talked about it like walking. It's faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. That's the life of confession, is continuing to do that. And one of the things that, I, that I'm so thankful for in, in our tradition in the church and in, in the Presbyterian Reformed world is the confessions that we have, the confessions and catechisms. They are so helpful. And the, the larger catechism, question 75, asks, what is repentance unto life? What is repentance unto life? Dealing with confession. And it says this, repentance unto life is a saving grace. So it's a grace from God wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. So it's His work. He uses His means of grace, the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of a sight and a sense, not only of the danger So that there's danger in rebelling against God, but also the filthiness and odiousness, got to love the the word picture there, odiousness, of his sins. So we realize that we fought against him, but it's not just that. It says, and upon apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, to such as are penitent. If you just get to this point where you realize you're just a sinner and a failure, but you don't see the mercy of God in Christ it's going to be hard. <laughs> you need to see the mercy of God in Christ. It says, then further, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. So this continual confession is, is, is all that, and it's endeavoring, it's, it's devoting our effort to walking in the light. It's pursuing holiness. It's not Pursuing sin. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We do this because he is in the light. And we confess because we have a God. If, if we could, I don't know if we can get that back up, but just the, the parallel of we confess our sins, or he is in the light because he's faithful and just. In the light and faithful and just, talking about the character of God, are both in there. And so those correspond. And when I think of faithful and just, As a description of God, there's a few places I tend to go. The first is Exodus 34, uh, when the Lord revealed his name to Moses. And he said, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see this faithfulness of God. But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He's also just. He is faithful and just. And, and the other place I would go is Romans three twenty one to 26, is what is almost a perfect paragraph in Scripture. It is so packed. And it ends with, uh, starting in verse 24, it ends with our redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, and we're going to look at propitiation much more next week, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. He might be just and faithful to His covenant to justify the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. He's faithful and just. God's just in that Christ was cursed on our behalf. He was our sacrifice of atonement. This is the only thing that cleanses sinners. Many of you have sung for years, nothing can wash away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, there is nothing else that can cleanse us of our sins but Jesus. Jesus. We don't, our remedy is not that we would learn ethics and have some good moral teacher. Now, is it good to learn ethics and have a good moral teacher and, and see those aspects of Christ? Sure, but that's not the sum of it. We all need purifications, purification from our sins that separate us from our God, our holy God, and Christ's atonement is the only, it's the only thing that does that and restores our fellowship with the Father and with each other. And that points to the one phrase in those two verses, verses 7 and 9, that I, I don't really see as a parallel, and it's that we have fellowship with one another. As we live in this positive way, it produces that fellowship with one another. It produces it. That's what is, is done by our walking in the light and our confession in, uh, 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 of sin and, and relying on the cleansing work of Christ. We have fellowship. There is lasting and true fellowship in Christ. There is none apart from Christ. There is no fellowship that lasts that's built on lies, it won't last. Something we will all mess up and offend one another, and if it's built on lies or it's built on self-justification, that fellowship will fall apart, and you'll have two, three, four churches down the road from each other because they all split because somebody takes somebody else off. We need to have fellowship built on the cleansing blood of Christ, and that rests in that, in everything in our worship, in our fellowship with one another, and how we fix a building. Okay? I'm just putting that out there. Please don't let that become a thing that irritates you so bad that you want to go somewhere else. Fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ, cleansing of sin through Christ alone. And that covers it all. And let's, let's live well with one another in that. So those are the positive statements. Let's look briefly at these negative ones that are in parallel with each other as well. So you can see verses 8 and, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And this one, I think, is even way clearer to see those parallels there. But these false teachers apparently claimed to be without sin, that to, to have no sin to confess, Folks, that is self-deception. That is a textbook definition of self-deception. They are not living reality. The truth is not in them. But let's not bash them too quickly or too harshly. Because if we're actually honest, at least with ourselves, we all possess a really strong ability to deny the presence and severity of our own sin we do. We're good at it. We're good at defending ourselves. We're good at turning things away and saying, oh, I didn't really do anything, or or, I'm sorry, you were offended. Our fallenness leads us to rationalize our sin and to deny it. There are are almost an infinite number of ways to deny sin in certain circles uh, today, and, and apparently for quite a long time, there's actually those who said they don't sin. They just claim to be without sin, to be maybe perfect in Christ and to no longer sin. And I'm telling you right then, they're sinning in that claim by itself. And others, and all of us probably do this in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes we can see it more glaringly in society. Others may simply redefine what they do as not actually sin. We see this very vividly um, in our society day. though I would say that there have always been what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins, that kind of our camp of Christianity just kind of winks or turns a blind eye to. Maybe pride, greed, who who knows? Some of those things that just they don't necessarily affect everybody else, but they do affect things, or, or time, or idolatry that you have of, of um, family or other things going on in life. They're, they're, those, are, those are the respectable sins, and, and we, we, we rail against the glaring ones. You know, today, though, there are sins that, that even used to be illegal that aren't anymore. So in society, why in the world would those things be considered immoral? But we're all good at denying our sin, at least denying the severity of it. But we cannot claim to have no sin. But we've got to make sure you don't swing the pendulum too far. Because know this, this is not an excuse to sin. To say, well, <laughs> if, woof, if I can't be without sin, woof, let's just have some fun. That's not what I'm saying either. That's not what John is saying here. And he's going to get more into that when we get into chapter three. But just hear me this is not an excuse to sin. It's not. Shall we sin more so that grace may abound? Paul responds by no means. There's there's no way. It's unthinkable. Folks, there is a tension in the life of the believer. I understand that. We are to be growing in holiness and righteousness and seeing that growth. But in this life, we will always be confronting sin in our lives. Always. So let us not deceive ourselves and make God a liar. That's not practicing the truth. That's not doing the truth. And there's a progression of, and and this is one way people will see in in verses 6, 8, and 10, this progression, because you see in each of them there's a lie. There's this uh, idea of a lie that there's lying in general uh, to others. Um, Then there's lying to ourselves. We deceive ourselves by saying we have no sin, and then we call God a liar. All that would demonstrate that the truth is not in us, that his word is not in us, if that's how we operate. I think John makes this point really clear. So when someone knows the message and he wants to make sure that message is clear, knows the nature of God, knowing God and his nature has implications in our lives. Has ethical implications, not just for our salvation, but for how we live. And the blood of Jesus is not merely for entrance into the kingdom, entrance into salvation. It's not a get out of a hell free card. The gospel is for every day. It's ongoing in our lives. His blood continues to cleanse us as we continue to confess our sins. And I hope you can begin to see why knowing all of this is is important, why these truths matter in our lives. Because again, we live in a society that is pulling us away from believing that that rationalizes sin constantly, phrases. You see a press conference, and somebody just says, well, it was just a mistake, or that's not the real me. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's the problem, And and the problem is you're not acknowledging that. You're denying it. Those are rampant in society, and honestly, they're probably rampant in our rationalizations of our own sin. Don't fall for that. Too often we attribute sin, and, and one writer put it so well, to, to what we, we just call mistakes, to, to bad parenting, to genetic propensities, or lack of adequate education, or it is embraced to affirm a perceived entitlement of individuals to define to moral principles for themselves. The claim that there is a God and that violation of His moral standard is sin invites harsh social disapproval in a culture that no longer believes in absolute truth and sees any such claim as a wrongful and arrogant assertion of power. Folks, believing that there are standards in the world today and that we are responsible to God is counter to our culture. It really always has been, but it feels a little bit more heightened lately This is why it is so vitally important to be grounded in the truth. To be grounded in the truth so that we don't fall prey to to social pressure, to to not be on the wrong side of history. So that we can walk in the light and have fellowship with Him and shine. And as as the end of uh, Isaiah 60, verse 3, talks about, that nations will come to your light as we live in. In the light, as we live faithfully, people will see that. The city on a hill shining. So let's rest in this truth. Let's rest in the truth. Let's, let's long to know the truth, but also trust what Jesus proclaimed in John 8:12, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness." but we'll have the light of life. Follow him, the light of the world, following Christ, walking in the light, folks. It's not antiquated. It's not just old-time things. It's actually life. It's our only hope in life and death, in Christ alone, and his cleansing is the place that we have hope to live a life of fellowship with him, and to live a life of honesty and integrity in this world. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we give you thanks and, yeah, just praise for, for how you have loved us and care for us. Lord, help us to know your light more and more clearly, more and more truly and to live in that light. Lord, where we all have that propensity to deny or to um, take some strides off the path into darkness or draw our hearts back, convict us and, and help us to confess our sin, pour out your grace upon us that we would, that we would walk in truth and in grace and live in that light and live in fellowship with you and with one another.